0: We'll take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John. This is our fourth and final week in chapter 10. Uh, we have been in chapter 10 now, again, for four weeks. I would let you know there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, and we are concluding the 10th chapter. So we're about halfway there. But interestingly, in John's record of Jesus' life and ministry, the first 10 chapters, almost half, are cover about two and a half years. In chapter 11 next week, we'll see we're in Bethany. And then the last 10 chapters cover one week. So think about it. First 10 chapters, two and a half years. Last 10 chapters, one week. And so obviously just by the sheer volume of emphasis that the Apostle John puts on the last week of Christ's life and ministry, it tells us that is the most important work that Jesus accomplished. Well, the message I'm preaching this morning, I've entitled, Deity on Display. Deity on Display. Amy and I have been married for 33 years, and I did a running tally. Of those 33 years, we have purchased over 25 vehicles. Now, that may sound like a lot, but again, I've had five drivers, children, so that's included in there. It's been more than that. I'm sure I forgot a few. But in those 25 purchases, there is only one Of those 25 vehicles that we bought brand new off the showroom floor, it was a 1991 Saturn. I've got a picture of a 91 Saturn, a different kind of car company, a different kind of car. And so we were both fully employed, no kids, and we said, hey, let's go get a brand new car, and we decided to uh, get a Saturn. So we go to the local dealership in Tampa, Florida, and the the salesman begins to walk us around. Now, Saturn was different uh, in that... What you saw on the sticker price was what you paid. There was no negotiating. There was no haggling. You paid the same thing that everybody else paid. Now, that was not for lack of trying on my part, but we paid what everybody else paid for the sticker price. That was one thing that was unique about Saturn as a car company. Additionally, what they be, the salesman began to show us some unique things about the particular car. So he opened the door and it had this automatic seat belt that closed when you cranked the car. You guys remember those things? Maybe you had them. And this was newfangled back in 1991. Also, he began to walk us around the car and he told us that these side panels are unbreakable polymer. And he began to BAM! Just hit the side of the car and say, You can't dent it, you can't break it. Well, I was sold at that. I mean, come on. So, 25 vehicles, we've only bought one. But the point was, he was trying to put on display all the uniqueness, all the features of this vehicle. The same thing will be true if you go to rent an apartment, the salesman will show you all the features of the apartment complex. If you go to a furniture store, the salesman will try to put on display what is unique and what is fashionable about these particular pieces of furniture. And what we see Jesus doing here in his final time with the religious leaders in the temple complex in Jerusalem until three months from now on Palm Sunday is he is putting on display his deity. He is God in human flesh. Now this will not be the first time that he puts his deity on display for them, but it will be the last time he publicly proclaims to the religious leaders his deity. Now, later on, we'll see he does share and tell of his deity to his closest disciples and his friends. But he makes one final challenge to these religious leaders and to the rebellious, unbelieving Jews about who he is and the salvation he offers as he puts his deity on display. So let's look at John chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 30 to the end of the chapter. This is the inspired inerrant word of God. Listen to it. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Again, I want you to remember, this is the month of December, according to our calendar. They are celebrating this Feast of Dedication, established in 164 B.C., a feast where they celebrated what we know as today the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. So this is December. He won't return back to Jerusalem after this exchange until Palm Sunday, when he's riding on the foal of a donkey to the clamor and claims of the fickle crowd, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David. But this exit from Jerusalem happens really in dramatic fashion. The Lord is cornered in the colonnade of Solomon, there in the temple complex, and there's a mob of men with stones in their hands, ready to pelt them until they can beat the life out of them. Well, from this passage, there are three transforming truths where Jesus puts his deity on display for them and for us. I want us to consider them. He does it in three unique ways. The first one is this. Number one, he gives a clear and unmistakable indication of his status. He gives this indication of his status. Now, this is not the first time that he has declared that he is, in fact, divine, Uh, to this hostile crowd in Jerusalem. But little did they know it would in fact be the last time. He's proclaiming to these religious leaders and it's their final opportunity. Now he proclaims and indicates his status as divine, as God in two unique ways in the text. First of all, he does so through his words. He says words that indicate I'm God in human flesh. I started off our reading today with the last verse of the previous passage, the previous chapter we studied last week. I and the Father are one. And the reason I included that is because it is this statement, this claim of being one with the Father, that caused this violent response and reaction among his opponents. This is a summary statement. Verse 30 is a summary statement. I and the Father are one. What's What's it a summary statement of? Well, in verses 28 and 29 of our previous passage, Jesus makes this promise to the sheep, we who are sheep. He said, no wolf, no predator, no thief can snatch you out of my hand. And the Father who is greater than all, no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. So that's the promise of protection and security from Jesus and from the Father. And then he summarizes that protection and that security with this statement, I and the Father are one. Now I, that's why I wanted to start here, because it is this specific claim of being one with God the Father that got this violent response. Now why would they do that? Why would they respond with a violent reaction? Because they knew exactly what Christ meant when he said, "I and the Father are one." You say he wasn't just saying, "The Father and I are one in purpose. We're one in vision. We're one in direction, we're one in outlook. He was one with the Father in all those things, but he was not just one with the Father in all those things. Jesus is saying here, I and the Father are one in essence. We are one in substance. We are equal in power and glory, position and authority. We have the same nature, God. Now this is what caused them to want to kill him. The primary Jewish statement in the Old Testament about the nature and the character of God is in what's known as the Shema. The Shema, you've probably heard it. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. Now, in the Greek translation of this, what's called the Septuagint, this word one, it's used in Deuteronomy 6, 4, the fundamental and foundational statement about the nature of god it's the very same word that's used here in john chapter 10 verse 30 so when jesus says i and the father are one he's reaching back to this deuteronomy 64 statement and saying i am one with the father i am the one true god not polytheism not multiple gods i and the father are one god this is why they picked up stones to kill him, to stone him. Now, interestingly, in uh, Jerusalem, I- Israel, in fact, in any territory that was under the Roman occupation of the Roman Empire, those individual territories and, and nation states were not allowed to carry out the execution, the punishment of a, an executable crime by the death penalty. The Roman Empire reserved that right for themselves. And so by them threatening and even potentially carrying out A stoning to death would have been a breach of Roman law, but we know a few months from here they actually do carry out a stoning, a breach of Roman law on one of the first deacons of the early church, Stephen. So here they are fully prepared to stone and kill Jesus, and I think this is just kind of parenthetical, my own ideas, I think this is why they cornered Jesus in the colonnade of Solomon. See, the Colonnade of Solomon, as I showed you last week in that image, was this large uh, covered area with massive columns, and just beside the temple complex is a thing called the Fortress of of Antonia, and the Fortress of Antonia, right beside, adjacent to the temple complex, had these tall towers where Roman sentinels will keep an eye on everything happening in the temple complex. If there's any troubles, any fights breaking out, they could go down and they could set things straight. But there in the colonnade of Solomon, they were out of the eyeshot of the Roman sentinels. And so they could carry out this stoning of Jesus. Now, later in this exchange, Jesus reminds them of what he had said before. I am the Son of God. This is, again, an unmistakable, clear claim of deity. Deity. And as such, that's why they threatened to stone him. And this would be blasphemy, unless, of course, it's true, which it is. Jesus is God. Now we see this pattern happening with the Jewish leaders and Jesus all through the Gospel of John. It begins back in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. This is because he had healed a paralytic on the Sabbath day, and they wanted to kill him. Notice what John's commentary says in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus could have very easily cleared up any misunderstanding. Oh, when I say God's my father, it's like he's the father of everybody. That's not what he meant, and that's not what he said, and that's not the way they took it. This is why they are upset from the very beginning. And even in our focal passage, look at verse 33 again. They put forward their justification for why they want to stone Jesus to death. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. In reality, they got it completely wrong. In fact, they got it exactly reversed order. Jesus did not make himself God, Jesus was God from the beginning. He has always and forever been God. And the reason I say they got it completely backwards is because it's not that he was a man who was making himself God. He was God who made himself man. D.A. Carson described why there was such a harsh response from the Jews in his commentary and to what Jesus had claimed. Notice what Dr. Carson says. He says, Jesus, a mere mortal, claims to be God lining himself up on the side of the unbridgeable chasm that separates the transcendent, infinite creator from his finite and fallen creatures. In other words, there is an eternal gulf between God and man. There is, as Dr. Carson says, this unbridgeable chasm between creator and creature. Our daughter, Amber, played volleyball through middle school and high school. And her senior year, they had a senior night where it included a parents versus kids volleyball game. So you had on one side all of the out-of-shape middle-aged parents, and included me and Melody Flowers, who's in our church. And on the other side, even though we're prepared to show them young whippersnappers what's up, On the other side, you have these young, well-chained, practiced um, teenagers. I will tell you, even though Melody had flawless form in her serving, and I had a very intimidating outfit, and I had my pregame stare-down of my daughter, it was a nail-biter, they won. Barely, just barely, barely beat us. But what would have happened if whenever it was time for the Parents and the kids to take the court if I would have said, hey, I think I'm going to play on the kids' side. I'm coming over to this side of the court. What would have happened? A revolt. Exactly. They would have said, get off of our side, you old geezer. Get on your side. Right? Because this is an unbridgeable gap between the mature, advanced people and these little whippersnappers. Right? An unbridgeable chasm. Well, to an infinitely greater degree. You can take that picture off. To an infinitely greater degree. (laughs) There is this unbridgeable chasm between creator and creature, between the God of eternity and we who are finite beings. And just as Dr. Carson said, it's unbridgeable. But listen, this is what Jesus does. There's two sides, God and man. And Jesus says, I'm walking over to the God side. You can't do that. You're a human. You can't be on the God's side. But Jesus says, watch this. I am the Son of God. My words profess my nature. My works declare who I am. I belong over here. And it absolutely enraged the Jews. But here at the same time, he could be on the human side. And this is the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus came to bridge what is an unbridgeable chasm. Jesus came to span the eternal gulf between God and man. But Jesus not only gives a clear indication of his status as divine, as deity, as God in human flesh through his words, but secondly, through his works. Through his works, over and over and over again, Jesus keeps pointing to his works that he's accomplishing as evidence of his identity as evidence of the fact that he was, in fact, commissioned by God. He pointed to his works as verification that his words were actually true. So, for instance, when Jesus says the words, I am the bread of life, he does the work of feeding thousands with the little boy's muffins. When Jesus says the words, I am the light of the world, he proves that through his works of giving sight to a man who was born blind. And next chapter, we'll look at it, chapter 11, when Jesus says the words, I am, the resurrection and the life, he will prove those words by bringing to life the four-day dead Lazarus. So Jesus is proving his words by accomplishing the works. Throughout the Gospel of John, this has been Jesus's motive and and action. His works prove his words. And we see this all the way back in chapter 5. Look at verse 36 what Jesus says there. He says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus' works prove that his words are true. You know what else? They also indicate what he claimed in verse 30. This unbreakable, un- understandable unity and oneness that he shared with God as God. Notice again verse 37 through 38 how he proclaims this. He says, For if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I want you to underline that phrase. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. He's saying the works prove what I declared in verse 30. We are one. We are the same essence, the same person, the same nature, the same power. We accomplish the same divine purpose. Anytime Jesus says you see me acting, you should know it is the Father acting in me and through me. And friend, there's no work that more beautifully illustrates this truth than the work of Jesus' death on the cross. We can know when we see Jesus' work of sacrifice and death on the cross, the Father is working in him and the Father is working through him to accomplish his divine purpose of salvation for sinners like me and you. Aren't you thankful that the Father and the Son are one? in essence, and one in power and glory. So Jesus' point is this. If, if I've done the works that can only be ascribed to God, then you need to think seriously about my claims. If the things I'm doing can only be attributed to God, you need to consider what I've been telling you this whole time. Consider the words and the works. And friend, I would tell you that same thing today. I would tell you, consider seriously the words of Jesus, and the works of Jesus, because we have a record of them. They're the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is, what he said, and what he did. And here's the deal about the veracity, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of the four Gospels. They were written at a time within the first century when many of the people who were around when all these things happened, could say, oh, that's not true. Oh, you're telling a lie. It didn't happen that way. You're rewriting history. No, they were still alive. And there is no recollection and no record of anyone refuting the four Gospels within the first century. In fact, just the opposite. Throughout history, throughout archaeology, they have confirmed over and over again that the people and the places and the events described in the four Gospels about Jesus are True. And friends, this is especially true in John's gospel, the last of the four to be written, because John wrote about these seven signs. He wrote about Jesus turning water into wine, he wrote about healing a paralyzed man for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. He wrote about taking a man born blind and giving him sight just with a word. He wrote about, as we'll see in the next chapter, taking a four-day dead Lazarus and raising him up from the grave. And so I would tell you, consider the works of Jesus. Look at what he did that proved who he is. And you should consider his claim that he is, in fact, the Son of God come into the world to save sinners. So again, both in his words and his works, he gives this indication of his status. I am God. Here's the second thing I want us to see as he puts his deity on display. He shows the inerrancy of his scriptures. He shows the inerrancy, I-N-E-R-R-A-N-C-Y, of his scriptures. And you'll see why in just a moment why I use this word, not just because it starts with an I at the very height of his opponent's hostility, when they've got rocks in their hands ready to pelt him to death, they're prepared to throw him, to beat the life out of him, Jesus brings up to them a somewhat obscure passage in the Old Testament. And he asks them to make a practical application to the specific situation they find themselves in there in the colonnade of Solomon. Look again at verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, quote, I said you are gods, end quote? if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Now you may be wondering like me when I read this this week, Jesus, what are you doing here? <laughs> it's kind of a head scratcher. What, what is the scriptural maneuver that Jesus makes that he stops them dead in their tracks? Well, as I was reading and studying this week and, and dialoguing with some of the men that helped me in the process of preparation, I've read multiple interpretations of Psalm 82, particularly in light of its context here as Jesus uses it in, in John 10. And there's many interpretations and ideas. But let me just give a brief explanation. What happens in Psalm 82 is the psalmist calls individuals, not God, but that's why there's a little g in the text, gods. And he uses the same word in the Hebrew, Elohim, that's translated in our Old Testaments, God. And so Jesus points this out. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word theoi, which is the plural of theos. We've heard of theism, that's, theos is God. So in, in our Greek Bibles here in John 10, he says they call them theoi, Gods, Little g. And so he's throwing them a little bit of a curveball here. He says, in your scripture, that we both agree is authoritative, God calls these people who are not God, gods. How do you explain that? Good question, Jesus. And if you don't have a problem with the scripture that says that, why do you have a problem with me saying I'm the son of God? Now let me kind of illustrate his linguistic maneuver here. This is a Nerf dodgeball. Whether you have a dodgeball, a football, a baseball, a, uh, a little bullet that's made from Nerf. Nerf, what do we know about Nerf objects? They are soft, squishy, yeah, I would say soft, but that's good, squishy. They're soft, this is a softball. But guess what? This is a softball. Well, which is it? Is this a softball? Yes. Is this a softball? No, but it's a softball right? So what Jesus is doing, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. You call them gods, what's the problem with me saying I'm the son of God? So whatever Jesus intended, it stopped them from killing him. So it's incredibly brilliant on his part, obviously. But I was struck by this maneuver by several things from Jesus. For one, as I meditated on it, I found this to be evidence of the divine mind of the Lord. And here's Jesus, and he has the whole of the Old Testament scripture cataloged in his brain. And at a second, he can go, what about Psalm 82, verse 6? What about it? What does that one say? I can't remember. We should have it memorized. We don't know what it is. He brings this to them, and it deflects them from stoning him. Absolutely brilliant. But what also struck me about it is that Jesus is appealing to, listen, their shared authority. Their shared authority. These hostile Jews don't recognize the authority of Jesus, but they do recognize the authority of the Scripture. And so he appeals to something they both agree to. They regarded the Scripture as authoritative. And I want you to particularly notice this short parenthetical statement that Jesus makes in verse 35. Scripture cannot be broken. This is a profound statement from the Lord on his view of the Bible, on his view of Scripture. It's a clear affirmation of words I say every Sunday before I read our focal text. I always say we are about to read the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And in that one parenthetical statement, Jesus is affirming the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. Why Scripture cannot be broken. Now, what do these words mean? Inerrant simply means it has no errors. If I write it, this document here, 11 pages, it's got a lot of errors. I'm reading them as I write. Infallible. I'm fallible. What does fallible mean? It means to have a fallacy, a falsehood, a mistruth, a, a wrong statement. We affirm the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. No errors, no falsehoods. Why do, why do I do that every week? Because I want to remind us the authority of the Bible we're reading. Further, I want to, re, to let us know within this postmodern culture we have, the scripture are under, Scriptures are under attack, both from secular minds and from so-called Christian minds that the Bible is not trustworthy. That the Bible's not reliable. But Jesus says, the Scripture cannot be broken. And this is the truth. And when he says this, he stops them in their tracks. And I'll tell you what else was fascinating to me about this. Is that when Jesus says and quotes from the Old Testament Scripture, he doesn't quote from one of the major books like Isaiah. He doesn't quote from the Ten Commandments. Here's one of the top ten. You need to think about this. He quotes from a poetry book, a book of song lyrics. Who quotes song lyrics, except maybe on Valentine's Day to your wife, right? He's quoting song lyrics, and not even a psalm of the shepherd King David, an obscure psalm from Asaph. And what else fascinated me about this is, and mark this, he makes his point, not by saying this is what this book of the Bible says, or what this chapter of the Bible says, or what this verse in the Bible says, he makes his point that stops them in their tracks by identifying a single solitary word. One word, Elohim. What does this tell me? Jesus believed in the authority, not just the big ideas of the Bible, not just the broad concepts of the Bible. He believed in the authority of every single word. That's important for us to remember. Every word of the Bible is inerrant, infallible, inspired, and trustworthy. Jesus himself says the Scripture cannot be broken. And what this means, friends, is this. We do not stand in authority over the Bible. The Bible stands in authority over us. Sometimes you may hear people say, and it sounds very spiritual, and it sounds somewhat enlightening, they'll say something like this. Well, the final authority for us as Christians is Christ. We're Christians. Christ is our authority. We don't worship a book. We worship Jesus. We don't worship ink spots on a white page. We worship our Savior, and that's true. But then they'll follow up that saying by saying what we should do then is interpret the Bible through this, our understanding of the character and the nature and the words and the life and the teachings of Jesus. And if they are inharmonious, well, we'll go with what we think Jesus would say. I saw this just this week. Just this week, I saw a well-known, very popular evangelical pastor make some, frankly, heretical statements about marriage, about human sexuality, about homosexuality. And I'm reading these comments from him, and I'm watching these video clips of his sermon where he says these things, And people are responding in the comment section. By the way, never read the comment section. People are responding, show me where Jesus ever condemned homosexuality. Have you heard that kind of a saying before? Show me where Jesus condemned transgenderism. I'll tell you where he condemned it. When he said, scripture shall not be broken. When Jesus said that, he means every word of every book of the Bible is true and authoritative. You can't interpret social Workings through your own man- imaginations. Jesus said every word of Scripture is true. It cannot be broken. J.I. Pa- Packer addressed this very novel interpretive idea when he wrote these words. Notice what Packer said. Others tell us that the final authority for Christians is not Scripture, but Christ, whom we must regard as standing apart from Scripture and Above it, he is its judge, and we are his disciples. As his disciples must judge Scripture by him, receiving only what is in harmony with his life and teaching, and rejecting all that is not. But who is this Christ, the judge of Scripture? Not the Christ of the New Testament and of history. That Christ does not judge Scripture, he obeys it and fulfills it by word and deed. He endorses the authority of the whole of it. Certainly, he is the final authority for Christians. That is precisely why Christians are to acknowledge the authority of Scripture. Christ teaches them to do so. And friends, the reason I'm kind of harping on this is, for one, as an under-shepherd, I'm called to protect the flock. And this is a lie from the pit of hell that is leading many so-called Christians astray. We interpret the Bible through, oh, this nice, touchy, warmy feeling, Jesus, and then we can accept anything that may not be comfortable to our modern sensibilities. Jesus is not over the Bible in this judging sense. He says, I affirm it. Every word is true. And what's remarkable here is we see this juxtaposition here at the end of chapter 10. For one, Jesus says, I'm God. <laughs> I and the Father are one, But then he also says, Scripture cannot be broken. I recognize and I appeal to the authority of the Bible, the individual words on the page. So again, Jesus held Scripture in the highest and greatest esteem. But further, Jesus appealed to Scripture in the deepest times of trial and pain. As he's being tempted in the wilderness, as Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 records He's under an onslaught of Satan, the likes of which no human has ever undergone. What did Jesus do? He quoted from Deuteronomy, of all places. Here in John chapter 10, as he's got a mob circled around him, ready to stone him with stones, what does he do? He quotes from this obscure Psalm 82, verse 6. Perhaps most amazingly, as Jesus is dying on the cross, hanging there, taking the punishment for our sins, what does he do there? In his moment of agony, he quotes Psalm 22. "And friend, if Jesus appealed to the Scripture in times of trial, temptation and agony, friends, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we have it on our minds? It is possible for you to misinterpret the Bible. me too. It's possible for you to misunderstand the Bible. me too. But what is not possible is for you to marginalize the Bible if you understand the way Jesus regarded and respected the Bible. It is the word of God. So Jesus puts his deity on display through the indication of his status. I am the same essence of God the Father. I am one in my words. I'm one in my works. They bear witness of me. He indicates his deity through the inerrancy of scriptures. The scripture cannot be broken But thirdly, as we move to a conclusion, I want you to see that he displays his deity through the ingathering of his souls. Through the ingathering of his souls. Again, the last paragraph of our passage presents Jesus leaving Jerusalem for uh, the last time until Palm Sunday. He's returning back to to the place where he was baptized by John the Baptist across the Jordan River. Before we consider that section, I want us to look at one one little verse, verse 39. at What happened at the end of this hostile attack from the Jewish leaders? Look at verse 39 again. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. These, these guys are ready to stone him. But John says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. As I've counted, this is the fifth time, fifth time they've tried to kill him or arrest him, haul him in. And for the fifth time, Jesus evades them. How did he do it? I mean, was he faster than them? Was he slick and just got out of their grasp? I mean, he was certainly outnumbered. There are some who think what Jesus did here was something like a vanishing act. He just, whoop, he's gone. Some of y'all, like me, regularly watch the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Great movie, um, George Bailey being the protagonist, played by Jimmy Stewart. On one particular occasion in that movie, he's uh, being sought by two police officers. They're attempting to arrest him. And Clarence, the angel, what does he do? He goes to one of the officers. officers you mean what he does? He bites the officer. Ah! Right, Clarence, the angel does. Very angelic thing to do. And George takes off running, gets away. So this police officer, he throws Clarence, the angel, down on the ground. And he's attempting to handcuff him. And then all of a sudden, poof, Clarence is gone. He's vanished. He's like, well, what happened? Where'd he go? He looks up to the other officer, and you know what the other officer said? I need a drink. (laughs) Now, is that what Jesus did here? He just poof, vanished? I don't know. But whatever we know, however it happened, Jesus eluded them. We don't know how he did it, but we do know why he did it. Because Jesus is operating according to the divine timetable. He says, I'm not to be killed during this feast of dedication. He wasn't to be killed during the feast of dedication of tabernacles, and certainly not killed by stoning. He knew it would be during the Passover feast as he would be the fulfillment of that picture of the Passover lamb shedding his blood for the salvation of all who find refuge under his blood. It would be by crucifixion, not by stoning. He's, again, putting his deity on display even in this vanishing and eluding their arrest. But look at verses 40 through 42 at this ingathering of souls. He, Jesus, went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You know, in the Gospel of John, we have seven I am statements from Jesus Jesus is the great I am. But John the Baptist, he was the great, I am not. <laughs> Jesus, I am. John the Baptist, I am not. I am not the prophet. I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. He always kept pointing to Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus leaves, interestingly, the religious, religiously educated, the upper crust, the upper class, there in Jerusalem, and he goes to the backwoods, backwater sticks across the Jordan. And when he gets there, he finds that John's teaching and John's ministry had left a profound impact on that community, on that region. And what did people say about John the Baptist that we just read? They said something he did not do and something he did do. He did not do any signs. He did not perform any miracle. He did not perform any healing. He did no sign. But what did John the Baptist do? Well, he lived a holy, consecrated, separated life, and he kept telling people about Jesus. That's what John the Baptist did. I don't know about you, but I know for me, I've never performed a miracle. I've never healed someone. I believe I've witnessed God do miracles, and I've witnessed God provide supernatural healings, and that's why we pray for people like we did at the beginning of the service, but I've never done it. John never did it. And so how can we make a lasting impact in our community, in our world, in your workplace, in your family? How do you do that? You live a holy life, and you keep telling people about Jesus. And what will happen? Many believed in him there I don't know your exact specific context where you are I know we've all got different hostilities and difficulties that show themselves regularly but friend live a holy life live unto the Lord live a separated life distinct and different and like John the Baptist keep telling people about Jesus and there's an opportunity John the Baptist was dead at this point his head had already been lopped off by here, sorry, I forgot children were in the room. <laughs> He's dead. But yet the aroma of his life and the echo of his testimony is still having a tremendous impact on that community. And the same could be true of you. Wouldn't that be a great thing to say about you at your funeral? His holy life, her, her separated, consecrated life, and how she kept pointing people to Jesus. It's having a lasting impact and effect. And in so doing, we will be a faithful witness to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we'll be putting his deity, not ourselves, his deity on display. And that leads to my last thought. We as sheep are called to testify of the nature and work of our good shepherd and to commend that testimony to the world with holy lives.